Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're uh, beginning our second lecture on East Asia. And in this lecture, we're going to take a look at the population geography and possibly the cultural geography. It, it uh, depends on how long it takes them to get through the population and settlement geography of the region. Well, as you know, East Asia has some of the most densely uh, populated areas uh, in the world. And you can see from this map that we have up uh, on the population uh, per square kilometer, uh, that it really is the case because these very dark red colors indicate more than 1,200 people per, or 12,000 people per square mile. And you can see we have a number of those areas, particularly along the coastal areas of, of uh, China, Taiwan, and even some in Japan as well. <clears throat> so uh, we have some regions in here that are very, very densely populated. Uh, generally speaking, the population growth rate is slowing. Uh, that's definitely true in uh, China, definitely true in Taiwan and uh, South Korea. Uh, Japan uh, is actually facing an aging population and the potential for a declining population. Uh, as you can see from this map, the lowland areas contain uh, most of the major cities and, uh, quite frankly, most of the agriculture as well. So let's move on and talk about Japan, first of all. Uh, the Japanese settlement and agricultural uh, agricultural patterns. So, um, as you can see, Japan is highly urbanized, uh, mainly because most people in Japan make their living either doing manufacturing activities or working in the service industry. Um, it's uh, agricultural lands, as I mentioned before, mostly in the coastal plains and in some of the interior basins. So, particularly in the Kanto Bay, uh, Plain here and the Kansai Plain down in here, as well as in some of the interior areas as well. Uh, the products that are grown are uh, rice, vegetables, fruit, including citrus. Um, some of the mountain slopes are terraced, that is, they're, they're carved or sculpted, if you wish, in the flat steps, and the uh, agriculture also occurs there. One of the things that's really interesting about Japanese agriculture is below the 37th parallel, Okay, uh, double cropping is, is possible. So the growing season is long enough that you can grow one, uh, two crops uh, during the year. So settlement patterns in Japan, uh, 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 cities and cities, industry and farms in the same basin and plains. Population density is very high, approximately 870 people per square mile. Uh, in the United States, if you recall, we have about 85 people per square mile. However, only 15% of Japan's land is suitable for settlement, which means the real uh, population density is much higher. Uh, major cities are Tokyo, Nagoya, and Osaka, and I believe I pointed those out uh, before. Um, and they actually formed something that's called the Tokaido Megaopolis. And we'll see a map in a few minutes uh, that uh, illustrates the Tokaido Megaopolis. So we're essentially going from Tokyo, Nagoya, down to Osaka. Down in this area. And so you can see we have Osaka, Kobe, and Kyoto down in this area that form a, a, a conurbation. But this whole area is, is very heavily urbanized. And Japan really does have kind of an urban agricultural dilemma, so to speak, I guess, if you wish. Uh, urban areas are densely settled, but the expansion, uh, but expansion of their cities would come at the expense of agriculture. Um, so uh, ja Japan has to make, uh, make a decision. Does it want land for houses or for farms? Japan makes importation of rice very difficult. Um, they, uh, the Japanese government 
has a policy of, of self-sufficiency in rice. They don't want to be dependent on any other country for the rice, since rice is such a main uh, staple of their diet. Um, to maintain food, uh, uh, food self-sufficiency, rice prices are very high. Other countries uh, want to sell rice to Japan, which would actually lower the cost of, of rice to the citizens. But as I mentioned, they want to be self-sufficient in rice. So let's take a look at some of the uh, agricultural patterns in some of the other countries of the region. We'll take a look at China, Taiwan, and Korea. Uh, and some of the general patterns uh, that we'll look at are uh, Taiwan and Korea are very urban. China um, is mostly urban, but or I'm sorry, mostly rural, but it's urbanizing very, very rapidly. And uh, it will soon reach about 50% urban. <clears throat> China's agricultural region, south of the Yangtze River, which is down in this area, down in here, um, river rice dominates. Year-round cropping is possible. Uh, summer rice and winter barley in some areas. Um, so rice is planted in May, harvested in August, and then the second crop is planted in August, and then harvested in May. So you can see they have a relatively long, well, they do have a very long growing season, year-round growing season. Uh, in some areas, we actually have uh, triple cropping that's possible in the very southern part of the country because the rice will, the rice will grow so rapidly. Uh, so uh, southern China illustrates something called agricultural intensification theory, which was a theory that was developed by, um, I believe she was an anthropologist, Esther Bosrup in the 1960s. And as the population increases in a given area, agricultural lands will be cropped more frequently. Um, so that's why they've moved from a single crop a year to a double crop and even triple cropping uh, per year. Uh, further gains in cropping uh, will have to, in China, quite frankly, will have to come from increased yields per acre. Okay, so uh, they pretty much have are cropping all the land as much as they can, as intensely as they can, and they'll have to figure out a way to increase the yields. Uh, in the North China Plain, in the lowest plateau in Manchuria, wheat, millet, I'm sorry, wheat, millet, sorghum are the main crops. Uh, in this area, winter wheat, uh, wheat that's planted in the fall and harvested in the spring, uh, is planted. The North China Plain, as I mentioned before, is one of the best examples of an anthropogenic landscape, a landscape that has been heavily transformed by human activities. Most of this region is either farm, residence, or factories. Manchuria, up in this area, uh, has more than 100 million people, but less crowded than other parts of China. It consistently produces a food surplus that can be uh, sold in other parts of China as well. The lowest plateau has only 70 million people. It's less crowded than Manchuria. It is arid, though, as I mentioned uh, when we were talking about the physical geography, with high erosion, so cannot support many people. Uh, the prevalence of subterranean housing, that is housing that's underground, uh, um, is apparent uh, because this keeps, uh, they stay cool in the summer uh, and warm in the winter. But unfortunately, they're also subject to collapse during the wintertime. So moving along to look at the uh, settlement agri agricultural patterns in Korea and Taiwan, Korea is densely populated, uh, has 68 million, uh, uh, 68 million people, approximately 22 million in the north, 46 million people in the south. South Korea's density is about 1,150 people per square mile. Uh, however, the highland spine is very sparsely populated. So uh, when we look at the uh, 
true uh, population density, I guess, or the real population density, if you want to put it in that sense, it's, uh, it's much higher. South Korea grows rice. North Korea also grows corn and other crops not, nearing, not needing irrigation because they do receive sufficient rainfall. Uh, as you can see, uh, some of the major cities, obviously, that I mentioned before in Korea are Seoul, Pusan, uh, uh, and so forth. Seoul has approximately uh, somewhere around 12 million people, um, and the greater metropolitan area has something like 40% of South Korea's population. So even when I ask students um, in class, uh, Korean students in class, where they're from, pretty much they always say, Seoul. But then every now and then I do get a student who'll say, oh, I'm from Incheon or I'm from uh, Busan or Guangzhou or someplace like that. Uh, but most, most people will say that they're from Seoul or the suburbs of Seoul or the outskirts of Seoul. So Seoul is clearly a primate city uh, in, uh, in Korea. Uh, Taiwan uh, is, uh, when we look at the population density, is the most densely populated uh, country in this region has about 1,500 people per square mile. has a total population of somewhere around 20 million people. Most of the population, as you can see from this map, live in the Taipei area or the uh, Kaohsiung area down in here or along this narrow coastal plain that faces mainland China. Uh, and this is the area that actually contains most of the, uh, obviously, most of the cities, factories, and farms in this relatively flat uh, coastal plain. So when we look at East Asia and, um, uh, and uh, resource procurement, this is a productive region, but not, but it's not uh, produce enough food to feed its, its large, densely settled population. Um, it's one of the world's largest food importers, uh, uh, particularly Japan. Uh, it imports meat, wheat, and feed for livestock from, US, from the U.S., Canada, and Australia. And Australia has really become a very important trading partner for Japan, uh, not only for food, but also for industrial uh, minerals and metals that are used in Japanese industry. Um, they, uh, uh, Japan imports soybeans from the United States and from uh, Brazil. Other imports also include construction lumber and pulpwood from the United States and Southeast Asia and Latin America. Energy is also imported, uh, so uh, fuel for, uh, or uh, I should say oil uh, for gasoline and uh, other oil products. Japanese exports are very valuable, so it can import, uh, can, so it can, can afford to purchase imported goods. Chinese agriculture. Uh, it was uh, Chinese agriculture was self-sufficient in food production through the 1980s, but is now a food importer. Uh, some suggest that China uh, could convert more marginal lands to agriculture, uh, but uh, many people also argue that China is producing as much as it can. World grain production may not be able to meet the increasing Chinese demand. Uh, limited supply and growing demand for uh, for will price poorer countries out of the market for uh, food imports. Uh, Korea, um, South Korea is the world's fifth largest importer of wheat after China, Egypt, Japan, and Brazil. It's the second leading corn importer behind Japan. North Korea has a strict policy of, of food self-sufficiency, but this has led to, uh, to several famines. 
uh, one in 1997 and 1998 was particularly uh, severe and led to uh, many thousands of deaths. Floods and uh, drought at that time destroyed most of the rice and corn crops. So let's move on uh, to take a look at a few other slides and then we'll take a look at urbanization in the region. So this is, first of all, this is the data on the population in the region, uh, the uh, demographic data. As you can see, obviously, China leads the way with about 1.3 uh, billion people. Hong Kong has a population of about 7 million. Uh, Japan has a population of 1 point, or, I'm sorry, 127 uh, million people. North Korea, 22.8, and South Korea, 48.9 uh, million people, and Taiwan with 23.2 million people. And you can see the population density. Look at Hong Kong. Um, you know, and Hong Kong is just an island, so this really makes sense. It's completely urbanized, 100% urban, as you can see. And so it has about uh, 6,410 people per square mile. And the way they achieve that is obviously through building up, uh, building apartment buildings and you know, high-rise apartment buildings, which we'll see some uh, images uh, upcoming. Um, then if we look at the rates of natural increase, there are very low rates of natural increase throughout the region. Japan actually has a zero rate of natural increase. Total fertility rates are actually uh, very low. The only country that's even close to replacement level would be North Korea. Okay, So all these countries are going to begin to experience aging populations. They're also going to uh, begin, at least uh, in the relatively near future, begin to experience declining populations as well. And looking at our percent urban, this is a highly urbanized area except for a few of the countries. China, um, you know, when I first started teaching world regional geography, China was only about probably somewhere between 25 and 30 percent uh, urban, and now it's moved up to about 47 percent urban. And those are the official statistics. So if we would look at the what are sometimes referred to as the illegal immigrants in many of the cities, I suspect that rate would probably be uh, actually over 50%. Uh, but in any case, the official statistics will soon be over 50% for China as well. Uh, Hong Kong is 100%, Japan 86%. You can see North Korea, even though it's a relatively poor country, and most people still make their livelihoods doing agriculture, it's about 60% urban. South Korea 82 and Taiwan 78. So highly urbanized area for the most part. Uh, relatively uh, uh, not such a young population. Most of the uh, people, uh, we have a relatively low proportion of the population under the age of 15, um, as you can see. And you can see Japan has about 23% of its population over, uh, over the age of 65. And um, the other countries in the region will soon be experiencing this as well. Um, migration, uh, you can see uh, a net migration rate for China is more people are leaving the country, but a, a very small proportion leaving the country than coming in, and the same for South Korea. And I suspect a lot of these are students, as we're seeing more and more Chinese students come to the United States uh, and other countries for education. Same situation with South Korea. Hong Kong, you see we have lots of people moving in a relatively high rate of uh, positive net migration for Hong Kong. And then North Korea, nobody leaves, nobody comes, uh, pretty much.
and Japan really limits its immigration as well. So uh, that's understandable why it has a very low net migration rate. Uh, looking at some of the urban, uh, this is an urban farm in uh, Japan. As, as I mentioned before, you know, the question in Japan is do we use land for houses or do we use it for farmland? And in, if you go to Japan, it's actually interesting. You'll find agricultural plots in the middle of the city where you wouldn't expect to find them, obviously, in the United States and things like that. And farmers have a very, uh, very large political voice in Japan as well. Uh, they have a, a lot of political power, and so um, Japanese politicians uh, are, are uh, they don't want to upset the farmers because uh, they know that the farmers uh, can marshal a lot of support for a politician that favors uh, agricultural policies that the farmers favor. favor. And then this is uh, in the lowest plateau, and I mentioned some of the subterranean housing, and this uh, is an image of some of that subterranean housing. You can see it, it, it essentially looks like adobe, pretty much adobe bricks uh, that were made out of the out of the soil and then uh, 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 actually built under underground. Uh, at least the facade looks like adobe bricks, and then much of the rest of the housing is underground. As I mentioned, it keeps uh, the house cool in the summertime and warm in the wintertime. Uh, so this is uh, Shanghai, contemporary Shanghai. This would be uh, the business district of, uh, uh, as you can see, this is actually the Oriental Pearl Tower that I've actually mentioned before. And actually, I can tell you from my own experience, this is a relative. This is a relatively old photograph of uh, what is known as Pudong, uh, the Pudong area of Shanghai, uh, because there are actually, there are many buildings now that are actually taller than the Oriental Pearl Tower. And so if you, uh, if you visit Shanghai, you can go up this Oriental Pearl Tower, and it has some observation decks uh, up near the very, the very top that you can overlook the entire city. And then I mentioned uh, apartment buildings, and this is what you'll see throughout much of East Asia, these very, high, uh, very tall high-rise apartment buildings. Most people in East Asia live in apartments. They don't live in single-family housing like we do here in the United States. So this is in Tokyo. You'll see the same thing in Hong Kong. You'll see the same thing in the major cities of, uh, of China as well, as well as in South Korea. In some cases, you can buy the apartments. Uh, they're extraordinarily expensive. Uh, I mean, we're talking uh, millions of dollars, depending on the location, of course. Uh, for your looking, uh, but they but they are very expensive, and they're actually relatively small as well. Uh, you know, when we you know in the United States we're used to big uh, housing space, you know, very large housing space, and that's clearly not the case in East Asia. Uh, I mentioned the immigrants uh, or migrants coming to uh, Chinese cities, and this is an image of some of the immigrants. Uh, in some cases, they come and they stay. Uh, and then they'll bring their families later. In some case, cases, it's a temporary migration. Uh, and what's actually interesting during the holiday season, particularly in the, in the fall, uh, you'll see um, it's one of the busiest times for travel uh, in China as uh, the uh, rural immigrants uh, go back home to celebrate the holidays in their, in, their, uh, in their home village and so forth to visit their families and things like that. Uh, 
But in many cases, uh, the immigrants uh, or the migrants stay and then eventually will bring their families to the city as well as they find living space and as they become, uh, have more wealth to be able to support their families in the city. On the other hand, um, it, they'll also send remittances back to their families as well. And then we have uh, Tokyo neighborhoods. Uh, as I mentioned, Tokyo neighborhoods are actually pretty interesting because unlike the United States where we have all different types of land uses that are actually segregated from one another, so we'll have areas of housing or residential areas you know, where people for our housing, uh, and we'll have all different types of housing. We'll have single family housing in the suburbs. We'll have multifamily housing like apartment complexes. Uh, you know, and we'll have those separated from one another. And then those will be separated from our commercial areas. Um, and our commercial areas are separated from, uh, and, and then we also have separate areas for industrial and, and things like that. That's not the case in, in um, Japan or in Tokyo. You'll find all different types of, of land uses combined with one another. So you'll find housing, you'll find commercial, you'll find agriculture, you'll find small factories in the middle of neighborhoods and things like that. It's actually very interesting uh, to walk around uh, uh, Japanese cities. Uh, so while we're talking, while we're talking about uh, cities, let's move on and talk about uh, our cities um, a bit and some of the urbanization in this region, because East Asia has a, a very well developed system of cities. Uh, very uh, urbanization came very early to this region. Uh, China is um, is one of our urban hearts that we often talk about, much like we talked about. Um, uh, urban hearts in the Middle East or Southwest Asia and North Africa. China also is uh, considered one of the world's urban hearts. So Chinese cities have a very uniform structure. Uh, early cities were surrounded by defensive walls and they were also designed by uh, geometric principles, uh, sometimes referred to as uh, geomancy. Um, the cities are usually uh, horizontal uh, with uh, low buildings for the most part, although the more modern the more modern architecture is clearly building upward. Uh, there was uh, changes that came into being during the uh, uh, colonial era, which really wasn't a colonial era, but when certain European countries had uh, spheres of influence over the cities. Uh, port cities were taken over by uh, Europeans, and that's when we start to see Western-style buildings appear. Uh, Shanghai became the most important colonial city. Uh, it was the world's second largest city in 1948. Uh, the, the communists, on the other hand, saw it as a foreign and decadent uh, city, and so they taxed it very heavily, invested the revenues uh, in other parts of the country, and Shanghai started to see a decline. Uh, however, it's really Shanghai has really been on the rebound, and it's, it's probably one of the fastest growing cities in the world. Uh, now, um, it's really seen a rebound since the late 1980s. It's become uh, China's financial center. It's become the center for transnational corporation uh, branch offices uh, for East Asia and, and China in particular. Um, I should mention that during the Mao period, uh, from the 1949 until Mao's death in 1976, uh, and even a little bit after that, uh, we didn't see much rural-to-urban migration in China, mainly because China had a, uh, an internal passport system or internal pass system, much like we saw in Russia uh, during the communist era. So people had to have 
papers to prove that they belonged in the city. You couldn't, you had no free mobility or free movement in China. Uh, if you were found in a place where you weren't supposed to be, uh, you would be sent back uh, to where you were be, supposed to be. Uh, so as I mentioned between, uh, actually, I was a little low on my estimations. Between 1978 to the present, as we saw, the present rate of urbanization, the present level of urbanization uh, is about 47%. In 1978, it was only about 13%. So you can see uh, tremendous growth in the urban population in China. And uh, much of that has, obviously, much of that has occurred uh, in just the last, what is that, 25 years or so? Uh, or 30 years. So very rapid rural to urban migration. You can imagine, so we're talking percentages. So imagine with a population of 1.3 billion people, you can imagine the number of people uh, that involves. Um, Beijing, on the other hand, uh, and you can see we have uh, a map of Beijing here in the various territories uh, within uh, Beijing. Beijing was uh, China's uh, capital. It's transformed under communist rule. Many billion, uh, buildings were uh, knocked down, raised, and Tiananmen Square was uh, created. Uh, Beijing is seen by some as it designs to express state power. And geez, is that a big surprise? Isn't Washington, D.C. designed to illustrate state power? I mean, when you look at the buildings in Washington, D.C., and their massiveness, you know, it indicates uh, power. In many ways, so um, you know it's not a big surprise. I think all governments actually do that in their capital cities to a certain extent. Uh, so China has a very balanced urban system. Uh, sizable cities are evenly distributed across the land. Um, China really has no a primate city, Shanghai, which is the largest city, um, but it. Uh, but Beijing is a very large city, and we have other very large cities. So Shanghai cannot really be considered a primate city. So having um, uh, China's uh, urban system really illustrates something that, uh, something that we call central place theory. Central place theory is a theory that was developed by Walter Kristall in the 1930s. And it holds that an evenly distributed rural population will give rise to a regular hierarchy of urban places with uniformly spaced large, larger cities surrounded by smaller towns. Such a pattern is generated largely by retail marketing. And clearly China illustrates that pattern. Uh, province level uh, municipalities, cities removed from the regular provincial structure of the country and granted their own metropolitan territories and governments include Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, and Chongqing, Chongqing uh, are qualified. Over 30 cities, and probably more than that today, uh, it's, it's difficult in some cases to estimate uh, of more than a million po uh, people in population. But many industries are moving to uh, rural areas. Um, uh, because of the crowdedness in some of the larger cities. So let's move on and take a look at some of the cities in uh, Japan. And that's why I pulled up this map. Now, I'd mentioned earlier the Tokaido Megapolis, and that's really illustrated uh, by this uh, dark brown color, as you can see. And it extends through from Tokyo and Yokohama to Nagoya, Kyoto, Osaka, and Kobe along the uh, uh, Tokaido Railroad as you can see, uh, this railroad line here. 
and so a lot of people commute along this uh, area. And then our secondary area of population concentration extends from Kobe down through Hiroshima and uh, Kitakyushu and uh, Fukuoka down in this area. Okay, so talking about um, city systems of Japan, Japan, um, Taiwan and South Korea, first of all, exhibit urban primacy. Seoul is a primate city in South Korea, and Taipei is the um, uh, primate city in Taiwan. Japan exhibits the super conurbation, a huge coalesced uh, metropolitan area, um, or megaopolis, if you wish. In the United States, we refer to uh, the East Coast megaopolis that extends from Oh, Boston down through Washington, D.C., probably down to Norfolk, Virginia. And it's a similar situation here. Pretty much this whole area is urbanized. Uh, we might have a few scattering of rural activities, but for the most part, everything is an urban considered to be an urban population in this area. Uh, Japan is also considered to be bipolar with two important urban areas, obviously Tokyo and Yokohama. And then um, uh, we might also include the city of Kawasaki in that as well. And then uh, to the southern part, uh, we have uh, Osaka, Kobe, and Kyoto that are pointed out. Nagoya is the center of Japan's automobile industry Okay, in this, uh, in this area. But certainly they produce automobiles in other parts of the country as well. Uh, Tokyo's population, it depends on what you read and what you, uh, the estimates, uh, but it's somewhere between 25 and 30 million people. It's actually the largest urban area in the world. Nagoya has about 8 million people. Osaka and Kobe have about 10 to 14 million people. And then we have a new uh, city that was developed um, that actually doesn't appear on this map. It's actually uh, more to the interior uh, out in this area in Honshu, and that's Shikuba. Uh, it's the new science city uh, that the government developed, but it has little private investment. We'll talk a little bit more about central Honshu. Central Honshu, uh, the Tokyo region, and the Kanto Plain uh, in this area here uh, is the heart of Japan. It really is the heart of Japan. And it has 31% of the population that produces some something like 53, or I'm sorry, not 53, 37% of Japan's GDP. So you can see it really produce, produces uh, the, large, the largest amount of GDP uh, for Japan. Japan's uh, Japanese cities are mostly new uh, because of World War II. Uh, most of the cities were destroyed and most of the pre-modern historic architecture that was made of wood, they were largely destroyed by fire uh, when they were bombed during World War II. So let's take a, a look at the uh, cultural geography of the region. Um, we'll talk about the cultural coherence and diversity in the region. Uh, East Asian commonalities go back to the ancient Chinese civilization. China emerged about 4,000 years ago uh, it, it was very isolated at that time. Uh, the unifying cultural characteristics in the region include religious and philosophical beliefs, and particularly Buddhism and Confucianism. The Chinese uh, writing system has diffused throughout the area, and the Chinese writing system is referred to the ideographic system uh, that uses symbols or characters, uh, which are referred to uh, as ideographs. 
and it represents primarily an idea rather than a sound. Occasionally, characters represent sounds too. Uh, this requires a very large number of, of characters, so it's very difficult to learn the uh, writing system. As China grew in size and stature, it brought its, uh, uh, brought its uh, writing system along. Korea, Vietnam adopted Ch the Chinese writing system, uh, replacing it uh, very much later with an alphabetic system. Japan also adopted it with substantial modifications. Um, Chinese, the Chinese writing system is largely separate from the spoken languages. The advantage, uh, the disadvantages, a large number of symbols, as I, as I mentioned, makes it hard to learn. The advantages to literate people using the same symbols need not speak the same language. Um, the writing system allowed the country to unify culturally, and I think that's pretty important to understand. It actually allowed the other areas to, um, to um, unify as well. The Korean modifications included, as I mentioned, Korea adopted an alphabet system in the 1400s to improve literacy and differentiate, uh, differentiate the Korean culture. Scholars and officials used characters until much later. Now virtually everything is written with an alphabet. The Japanese modifications, uh, initially Japan uh, borrowed Chinese characters and they called those kanji. Uh, grammatical differences made use of kanji awkward for, this, for sentence construction. Japan developed Harangya, uh, a unique quasi-alphabet uh, system, uh, which is sometimes referred to as a syllabary, uh, which each system represents a di distinct syllable or combination of a consonant and vowel sound. Japan has 51 Haranga symbol, symbols. Japan uses a similar syllabary uh, called kat katakana. Uh, I'm sorry, my um, pronunciation is very poor in some of these words uh, for for, uh, uh, for spelling of foreign word, uh, foreign words of uh, foreign origin. Um, it uses harang. Uh, the use of haranga increased literacy, especially for women. Much earlier Japanese literature was written by uh, by women. Advanced Japanese writing skill contains many kanji uh, or Chinese characters. Literate Japanese can read Chinese. Japanese can also be written in the Roman alphabet or Romanji and is used in uh, advertising and computers. And actually the banners on these, uh, on the buildings here, illustrate the three different types of Japanese uh, uh, writing, as you can see. Um, we have the uh, kanji, haranga, as well as the katakana writing systems illustrated here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, Confucian legacy. Confucianism is an idea system developed by Confucius, more potent in China and Korea than in Japan. Confucius or Kung Fu Zi, in, uh, which uh, is how you say his name in Mandarin Chinese, lived in the 6th century BC, wanted to create a philosophy to generate social stability. The philosophy of Confucianism stressed a deference to legitimate, to legitimate authority, emphasized that authority was to be responsible and benevolent to all people. Uh, family, the family was the bedrock of society. The emperor was an almost godlike figure, uh, had the mandate of heaven, 
However, was not however this was not irrevocable. Uh, the, the emperor could be uh, displaced, and that's why we see different empires uh, in China over the time. Over time, um, stress the need for well-rounded, broadly humanistic education, and uh, that's I think that's extremely important to understand today. The respect that most Chinese and most East Asians, quite frankly, have for education, and the importance that, pl that is placed on education by parents uh, for their children. Um, education was seen as a way to uh, advance socially. Um, uh, by a system of meritocracy, the individual to be judged on, on behavior and education rather than by their family. So if you recall, in Europe, during the feudal period, people were born into the nobility. In this uh, region, you could actually advance um, socially uh, through meritocracy. Uh, the mandarins were the high officials of pre-modern China, selected on the basis of their performance on competitive uh, examination. Now, unfortunately, uh, to be able to take those examinations, usually only the wealthy could afford the education to be successful. So just a little bit more uh, about um, Confucianism, because I find it really fascinating. And I think if you go to China or East Asia, that you too will, will see how some of these ideas uh, still exist. Uh, in the region. So Confucian values are va uh, based on the ancient Chinese tradition or Li, which uh, refers to pro propriety or correct behavior. Uh, it also prescribes a set of ethical principles for the uh, orderly conduct of daily life, following, following tradition, fulfilling obligations, treating others with sympathy and respect. Um, so very important in Chinese uh, society and an extremely important part of Chinese and East Asian culture. Uh, Confucianism in Japan in China, the mandate of heaven was revocable if the emperor failed to live up to his responsibilities. And this helped to explain, helped to explain as I mentioned, the, the different ruling dynasties. Japan, on the other hand, no has, has no revocation clause and has the same ruling family throughout its written history. The modern role of Confucian ideology in Japan, on the other hand, uh, still contains the respect for education, helps facilitate social stability, but many parts of China's, uh, uh, but many parts are um, of China are still left out of progress. Religious unity and diversity in East Asia, Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, is the dominant form of Buddhism. It stresses uh, the human soul's quest to escape an endless cycle of reincarnation, that is, rebirth, and reach, and, and then the eventual ability to reach uh, a state of union with the divine cosmic principle, or nirvana. It originated in India in, sixth, in the 6th century BC. Uh, it's widespread in East Asia, especially, as I mentioned, especially the Mahayana, or Greater Vehicle Buddhism. Mahayana, as opposed to other forms of Buddhism, simplifies the quest for nirvana by holding that some souls, Radhavistas, refuse divine union for themselves in order to help others make spiritual progress. Mahayana Buddhism allows, it follow, allows its followers also to believe in other faiths. Uh, Chinese are Buddhists and Taoists, 
Most Japanese follow Buddhism and Shintoism. And of course, we have Japanese Zen, which is a variation on Mahayana Buddhism. Buddhists have sometimes been persecuted, partly because of the religion or originated in Indo, India. Uh, Shinto in Japan uh, is closely bound to Japanese nationality. Uh, Shinto began as an animistic worship of natural nature spirits. It is now refined into a subtle set of, of beliefs about harmony and about the harmony of nature and humanity. Um, and if you've ever seen the Tori Gates in Japan, uh, those are associated with uh, Shintoism. Taoism and other Chinese beliefs. Uh, Taoism or Taoism stresses the acquisition of spiritual harmony and the pursuit of a balanced life. It's associated with Feng Shui or geomancy or how uh, Chinese houses and cities and so forth are, are um, designed. Um, the Chinese and Korean principle of designing buildings in accordance with the spiritual power that some believe course through the local topography. Other traditional religions focus on unique attributes of particular places, uh, particularism, but these religions are usually practiced only locally. Uh, minority religions in the region, Protestant Christianity is growing in Korea and may be rising also in China. Chinese-speaking Muslims called Wei in the northwestern part of China, and I pointed those out a little bit when we talked about uh, Central Asia. Yunnan province, uh, which has a border, the, the south-central border, uh, and is segregate, has segregated villages in just about every province. Secularism in uh, East Asia. East Asia is one of the most secular regions on earth. In Japan, religion is not very important. Confucianism is a philosophy, not a religion, is important in China. Uh, the communist regime that took power in 1949 discouraged religion. As the regime relaxed, religion seems to be making a comeback. North Korea has a strict communist regime and continues to repress, repress religion uh, in that country. Um, moving on to take a look at the linguistic diversity a little bit. Uh, so this is what we're talking about as far as religion goes. We have our Mahayana Buddhism, we have Shintoism, we have Taoism, uh, our minority re uh, religions. And this has secularism and Marxism. Marxism is not really a, um, a religion, obviously. It's more of a philosophy, um, uh, a socialist philosophy uh, that believes on the uh, equality in economic affairs, uh, that uh, economic benefits should be shared equally with every, uh, with amongst all the people, and um, you know obviously this has taken hold in China, uh, during, especially after uh, World War II and the Maoist period, and now we see China with a more mixed economy, but still is very strong in uh, North Korea, and then we have our Buddhist, uh, our Golden Buddha. Uh, as part of a, a, a temple, a Buddhist temple. Okay, so let's move on and take a look at the linguistic diversity in the region. Uh, spoken Chinese and Japanese are very different. Language and national identity. Japan, uh, uh, Japanese has been classified as the only member of its language group. Some linguists suggest that Korean and Japanese are similar enough to combine into a single family. And as you can see on this map, uh, there's um, uh, everybody 
uh, it seems, would speak Japanese in Japan. And that's what really makes um, uh, Japan a, a true nation state in many, sense, in many senses of the word. Uh, some, uh, as I mentioned, a less common belief is that uh, they're distant, uh, distantly related to the Altaic languages, the Turkish and Mongolia languages. And if you remember, when we talked about Central Asia, we mentioned that uh, Mongolia or Turkish, the Turkish or Altaic languages has actually had their beginnings up in this region and then uh, diffused uh, to other parts of the, of the world. The Japanese are mostly homogenous and so view themselves. Uh, Japanese in the south and the a different ethnic group in the north, the Ainu. The Ainu were actually the uh, original settlers, settlers of the Japanese islands, but as ja uh, Japanese moved into this uh, area, uh, the Ainu were pushed further and further north, and eventually uh, most of the Ainu now live on the island of Hokkaido, and they are somewhat discriminated against. Um, now most Ainu has, have mixed Japanese and Ainu uh, ancestry. Other minority uh, minority groups in Japan, uh, we have some dialectical groups. Tokyo is considered to be the standard Japanese language. Osaka um, and Ryukyu uh, have dif uh, distinctive uh, dialects. We also have approximately 700,000 people of Korean descent uh, in uh, Japan, and they were brought to Japan mostly during the occupation when Japan occupied the Korean Peninsula and Manchuria and other parts of East Asia. Um, there's been a uh, very small trickle of immigration into Japan because of the very strict immigration policy, policies that Japan has. Um, and then we also have another group that has been discriminated against in Japan which are known as the Burakuman. Uh, and this is really an outcast group whose ancestors worked in what the Japanese consider polluting industries. Um, they're very often associated with death, and those industries would include things like undertakers, um, uh, meat processors, or butchers, and things like that, leather craft. And as I mentioned, they often suffer um, discrimination. In Korea, uh, obviously most people speak Korean. Uh, Korea is also a largely homogenous uh, region, uh, the regional, uh, strong regional identity and consciousness. Koreans are found uh, elsewhere, and there's some Koreans that are found in China. Uh, Korean communities also in Kazakhstan, as well as obviously in the United States. Um, uh, quite a few Korean communities in uh, the United States. Uh, in China, um, we have the Han Chinese as the dominant group, and they make up approximately 92% of the population in China. Uh, the, Han Ch the Han Empire was considered uh, sometimes as referred to the Roman Empire of the East. Uh, the Han Dynasty was a glorious period in Chinese history. Um, so, um, so the Han Chinese have long been incorporated into Chinese cultural and political systems, they do not all speak the same language. Mandarin Chinese is the dominant language, uh, and it's the language in northern, central, and southwestern China. Non-Mandarin and non-Mandarin uh, languages are Fujianese and Fujianese province uh, in this area right here. And I've had quite a few students from this area. Shanghaiese in the Shanghai area, obviously, which would be right in this area as well. Then we have the Hakka which is another ethnic group, and they speak a southern Chinese language. Uh, some uh, are considered uh, by, um, 
Some uh, people consider the Hakka not to be Han Chinese. Others do consider them. And I've actually had a number of students whose uh, ancestors were considered to be Hakka, but um, uh, especially their grandparents and so forth were considered to be Hakka. But now the, um, the students that come to the United States mostly consider themselves to be Han Chinese. Uh, the Hakka migrated to several upland locations. They grew upland crops, worked as lumberers, stonecutters, metal workers, and so forth. Uh, the Hakka actually embraced communism, and many have reached high positions in the Chinese government. Um, and they really view themselves as um, the standouts of the universalistic Chinese culture. Chinese languages, which we've already talked about a bit, are monosyllabic. Uh, all words have only one, uh, have only have one syllable, but com some compound words are uh, are possible. Uh, they're also tonal. Each syllable changes the meaning uh, with uh, pitch changes. So Chinese, the Chinese language is really difficult uh, to learn. We also have quite a few tribal people uh, living in China, and they live in the more remote areas and the upland areas. Tribal implies a traditional social uh, order based on autonomous village communities. Some once had kingdoms but are now subject to the Chinese state. The Manchus living in the Manchuria's upland would be one of those um, uh, groups. Um, and they speak uh, what's known as the Tungusic language. Uh, in Kuangxi, residents speak uh, languages related to Thai. Uh, Guangzhou is an autonomous uh, region, uh, and we talked about autonomous regions uh, earlier. Autonomous regions allow non-Han peoples to experience socialist modernization at a different pace. Um, in some cases, they are also allowed to have more than one children, one, more than one child as well. Um, very little autonomy in reality. Uh, other autonomous regions include uh, Zigzang, which is Tibet, Nei Mongol, or Inner Mongolia. Uh, in this area, and uh, in this area up in here, and um, we have also have Ningxia, uh, which are uh, Mandarin-speaking uh, Muslims. Other areas with non-Han languages include Yunnan and Qingzhou uh, in southwestern China and western Zhenjiang province. So you can see we have a different variety of uh, languages in uh, in China. Uh, quite frankly. But the vast majority of people speak Mandarin Chinese, or at least can understand Mandarin Chinese. So uh, communication uh, is not uh, all that difficult. The tribal people speak uh, languages related to, related to those of Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, the Han Chinese migrated to Taiwan around, six, uh, around the 16th century. And so we have um, Han Chinese on, uh, on the island of Taiwan. Uh, and then, of course, we had uh, the Japanese actually occupied Taiwan for a period as well. And then in 1949, we also saw the nationalist Chinese uh, that were defeated by the communists also uh, move into Taiwan as well. So as I said, nationalist Chinese came to Taiwan in 1949. They transformed Taiwan. Uh, Mandarin became the uh, official language. Tension exists between the Taiwanese that existed there before and the Mandarin. Chinese are, uh, the Taiwanese are beginning to reassert their language rights in the 1990s. So let's take a look at East Asia uh, culture in the global context. So you can see these are some of the 
um, southern uh, some of the non-Han villages in China and southern China, as you can see. These are Japanese Anu men, okay, and they really do have a different appearance appearance than uh, uh, what we typically think of Chinese. For one thing, they have more facial hair and so forth. At least the men do. Uh, this is the Hakka diaspora. As you can see, uh, many have left China and moved to other uh, parts of East Asia and Southeast Asia. And we'll talk a bit more about that as well uh, when we talk about the overseas Chinese uh, that have moved to many parts of East Asia, some voluntarily and some uh, forced to move by the Europeans when they controlled much of this area. Uh, this is Yunnan province, and you can see its linguistic diversity. Uh, so we have uh, Mandarin uh, throughout much of the region, but then we also have a variety of other languages uh, spoken uh, throughout um, the uh, uh, region as well. And you can see this is the area in southwestern China that borders Vietnam, Laos, and Myanmar. So let's speak a bit about um, um, Chinese culture in a global context. Uh, there's tension uh, between internal orientation and tendencies towards cosmopolitan. Until the mid-1800s, all East Asian countries attempt, attempted to close their boundaries to Western culture. After World War II, Japan adopted global orientation. South Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong also adopted a more global orientation. Uh, the Chinese uh, and North Koreans uh, still maintain uh, their insulated uh, perspective, however, especially during the communist era uh, in, in China. Uh, but that obviously changed uh, after Mao Zedong uh, passed away in 1976. Uh, the cosmopolitan fringe, Western influences in the fringe. English is widely studied, especially in Japan, and obviously in China today, that's obviously widely studied. And internet usage has increased pretty dramatically. East Asian products to the West, um, we uh, import a lot of stuff from uh, China, uh, Hong Kong action movies and so forth, Japanese uh, dominance in electronics and video games and so forth um, as well. So uh, um, we can also talk about, um, uh, in, you know, for example, in China, uh, the Chinese heartland, uh, orientation, it has an interior orientation, external, external orientation along the coastal areas. So most of the coasts have global connections, uh, as we'll see when we talk about the economic geography of the region. Under the communists, only Hong Kong main external ties. However, the opening of China, as I mentioned after Mao Zedong uh, passed away in 1976, China began to open up, and we sometimes call that the, uh, the Great Leap Outward. Um, uh, the southern coast became uh, more prominent, allowed a reemergence of regional local identities. Southern Chinese or Cantonese culture is viewed as internationalist and is growing in popularity. Um, So um, yeah, this is a Chinese theme park, and actually, when I was in China, they're actually building a a, a Disney World uh, near Hong Kong. I believe they're also building one near Shanghai as well. Uh, and then, uh, probably most of you have heard of K-pop, uh, the Korean um, 
wave of culture that's spreading across much of the globe, and especially uh, to Korean com uh, communities and other parts of the world, K-pop in the United States. We can see K-pop on the Big and Ben campus, quite frankly, as well. Okay, so that's what we're going to finish up, talking about the uh, population as well as the cultural geography of the region. When we come back for our third lecture on East Asia, we'll take in the geopolitical framework, which is quite interesting, as well as the economic, uh, economic geography of the region.